Well, let's all take our Bibles and we'll pull them out together and go to the book, once again, of Matthew and Matthew chapter 24. We did the first half of it last week and uh, we're going to finish the second half of it this week. Matthew 24. We talked about our renewed effort and um, as we as a church are looking ahead what God would have us do, what are the fundamental things that we've got to keep on the forefront and be about as a church. And uh, it's always good to also start out with the end in mind. What is the goal? Our lives are not merely minds we want to spend such that we're just spinning wheels and hope that something counts for something, right? We want to have a purpose. We want to know where the destination is. And Jesus makes a point in Matthew chapter 25 and 24 and 25 to let his people know God is taking history to a point. And his people need to know about this. They need to have this focus about them. Now, Karen and I were sitting down last week, and for those that came in, we looked at that era called the Great Tribulation, about a seven-year period before the actual return of Christ, and how God is going to take the Jew, and he will break the Jew such that they will recognize he whom they have pierced and will turn unto him. But then there will be other people in the world that are going to repent. But there's going to be an awful lot who don't. And then Jesus transitions from talking about that period to moving into when his actual return will happen. Now, we talked a little bit last week, and hopefully some of you remember, that before all of this, Jesus doesn't address an event called the rapture. When the church itself is taken up, he calls his own unto himself. And so we who are part of the church today leave and are not a part of this. But he makes a point to let his disciples know so that generations can know and folks can understand where Jesus is going. Well, Jack, if we're not going to be a part of this, Why are we talking about it? Well, number one, because Jesus did. I think if Jesus talked about it, that it's important that we understand and know this too. But when we understand what the end looks like and how we're going to get there, it helps keep us from error today. Because can you mess with somebody's life and someone's soul if you kind of twist how things are going to end on them? You can. It's a very disturbing thing. In fact, When we conclude this passage, we're going to look at an instance in the New Testament in which that is exactly what happened. So we'll see the importance of it. So for now, in Matthew 24, after telling the disciples how everything is going to be, he emphasizes the same idea, not once, twice, three, four. He does it five times. He's coming at this thing from all these different angles. Now, if you want to emphasize something, if you want someone to really grasp it, A point, you repeat yourself, right? How does that work with a little two-year-old? We've had a granddaughter come through the house, and uh, once doesn't work so good. Twice, probably not so good either. You're doing three, four, sometimes five times, sometimes 25 times to communicate an idea here. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is communicating something of importance, and he's repeating it. Uh, One individual put it like this, constant repetition Where is it? Here we go. Constant repetition carries conviction. So when Jesus repeats something five times, you think we ought to pay attention? You think we ought to take notice and and, and make a point of this? Because either he's got conviction or he's got OCD, one of the two. And I don't think it's the latter. So like yellow jackets in an outhouse, you've got this stationary target. He's coming from all different angles, and you can't get away from it. He makes a point for you to know this is significant. So let's look at it, beginning in Matthew 24, verse 32. He says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Easy illustration. 
all of us get this. Uh, to me, this is how it went. Trees and women are like this. How do I mean? When they're about to bear fruit, you know it. And when a lady is pregnant early on, you may have no idea. But when she gets near the end of the term, you know. You, you, you've got a sense. Okay, something is going to be happening soon. It's the same thing with the fruit tree. In both cases, I see something, and it's clear something is about to happen. There is fruit that is about to be born. Verse 33, so you too, when you see all these things, meaning all the events that he unfolded in verses 4 to 32, when you see these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, there's a lot of people that struggle with that. This generation won't pass away. What's he talking about? Does that mean everything happened in the lifetime of the disciples? Well, it doesn't seem to be the case because everything Jesus talked about in these instances, some of those things haven't yet happened. Some can be interpreted as having happened when Rome came in and stormed Jerusalem, but there's other aspects that we haven't seen yet. So it doesn't seem like when Jesus is talking about this generation that he's talking about that particular generation. And you, and you go and you read commentaries and listen to scholars. Okay, what, what does that word mean? There's a lot of ink that has been spilt. I personally land in, on a place, and I get it through context. I think what he's saying contextually is that the people who are in the generation that see the beginnings of these signs are going to be the generation that sees the end, meaning it's not a long period of time. If a generation is generally 20 years He's highlighting the fact that there are going to be people that get on the front end of this, and before those 20 years are up, they're going to see its completion. They're going to see Jesus' return. So it isn't eons and eons once you get through the tribulation and these signs start to unfold. It's a relatively short period of time. Verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son but the Father alone. Anybody here struggle with that? Wait a minute. If Jesus is God and Jesus knows all, how does he not know this? Well, this is where we have to go to other passages in the Scripture to sort of help us understand this. And it's in the book of Philippians when the Apostle Paul highlights the fact when Jesus came in the human flesh, there were aspects of his deity that he laid aside. Now, it doesn't mean he quit being God, he just surrendered those abilities, that knowledge in some cases. Um, some abilities, I mean, he operated as a man, and even though he could do miracles, for the most part of his life, he operated as a normal human. He had to eat. He had to drink. And so he laid aside some of these other aspects of his deity during this time period. So what do we do with all this? What's the whole point of the first parable? I'll just summarize it like this. When the signs appear, the coming is near. That's his point that he's driving home. And then he goes into a second illustration. And this time he goes back to the Old Testament narrative and the story of Noah. Verse 37, the coming of the Son of Man is going to be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. So again, you've got 120 years, Noah's building this ark, the people in the world are looking at this and they're seeing this thing happen, and yet it's a sign of judgment, and they just blew it off. They got used to it. Yeah, he's still working on that 
ark. I have no idea what's going on there. And he just watches it. The people are watching it as it continues to be built. But they dismissed it and they blew it off right up until the floods came. What were they doing in the meantime? They got consumed in daily life. Just going about their daily business, never stopping to think that history is going to a point. God has a plan. There's a destination. And each person has a role in it. And how are they with God in that role? And they dismissed it. And so Jesus' point, you need to stop. You need to think. You need to take note when these signs appear. And the next story he gives is the application of the Old Testament lesson. And it's just a very brief story. It's the story of two pairs of people. Verse 40, then there'll be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, so many within our denomination read that and we think, oh, he's talking about the rapture there. You know, that, that, that um, Jesus will call up the church at this point and that's the ones who are taken. The problem is the context doesn't fit that because Jesus wasn't talking about the rapture. He's talking about his return in particular. And so there's a, I mean, we in the evangelical service, have you ever, if you listen to contemporary Christian music from about 40, 50 years ago, y'all remember this one song, a guy named Larry Norman? He came out and he's saying, you've been, how'd it go? Left behind. That was the whole idea of the story. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. And it was this passage of scripture that most people refer to when they think about that. So it's another one of those passages where people apply uh, a right doctrine, but in the wrong context. The church will be raptured, but that's not what Jesus is addressing. Instead, what he's addressing here, you kind of have to go back a verse to see what he's saying about Noah in verse 39. And what does he say in, in verse 39? The wicked were taken away to judgment. So when he's addressing this here, he's not talking about the church being raptured. He's talking about right before the return, the judgment is coming and it is the wicked who are removed from the, uh, from the earth into a judgment. That's what's coming their way. Verse 42, therefore, be on the alert because you don't know which day your Lord is coming. Put this in sort of like a little rhyme that we can remember. You can say, peace and party was the cry, the unprepared said by the ark. Don't go and make the same mistake and leave your destiny a question mark. That's the summary of the point of what Jesus is driving home here. Learn from this example when God judged and know that he will do it again in the future. Now he goes to his fourth illustration. This one is of the household, or the landowner, or the household owner. And he says, but be sure of this, in verse 43, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert, and he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Anybody here ever had your house robbed? Karen and I did. It's, it's quite the experience. We had gone away on a vacation, and uh, I needed a piece of paper that I had left at my house. So I called my friend back at where our house was, and I said, hey, do me a favor, go into our house. He had a key. I want you to go in, I want you to look for this piece of paper and give me this information, these numbers that I need. So he went, sure. So he called and he says, I can't find the paper at all where you're saying. And I said, okay, go to the bed, look at the left, there's a speaker. There's no speaker. What? Turn around. Is there a TV behind you? There's no TV. Oh, we've been robbed. So my friend called the police, they came out, they did a report and everything. And, and it was like three or four days before we were going to come back. So... 
we're still gone. My friend comes back each day to check on things. He calls me back, I think, on the third day, and he goes, guess what? They came back again. And this time, they really cleaned you out. And they did. They just went through that house and took everything that was, well, hardly anything was valuable to us anymore. But um, most of the things, they just, they took it all. And it totally shocked us. And you know what? They never once thought about leaving a note after the first robbery. We're coming back in three days. At 2.11 in the morning, we're going to be here again, and we're going to clean you out real good at that time. Of course they wouldn't. They used the element of surprise to accomplish their objective. You all remember a guy named, oh, I don't know, Osama bin Laden? Everything's going just fine. He's in his house. And then one night, SEAL Team 6 comes in and hits unawares unto him. And they came and they got him. And Jesus says he's going to use surprise to his advantage as well. Verse 44, for this reason, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you don't think he will. As the passage says, like a thief in the night, or we could say like SEAL Team 6, his return is going to catch people unawares, people who were not on the ready and had their alert system set up so that they could be prepared. Living in Texas, we would put it like this. Keep your saddle oiled and your gun greased. In other words, you always want to be ready. Ready for action, ready to do what's necessary, ready for things to change and is coming. Finally, the fifth example, keepers of the house. It's in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. So the call is more than merely be alert. He's saying, while you're being alert and while you're waiting, you be faithful with what I've entrusted unto you. Be faithful with the knowledge. Be faithful with the relationships. Be faithful with the word. Be faithful with anything that I've entrusted to you for my name's sake. And then he contrasts the one who isn't faithful. And that's verse 48. If the evil slave says in his heart, my master didn't come for a long time, and he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he doesn't expect him, and in an hour which he doesn't know, and will cut him in pieces, and assign him a place with the hypocrites. And in that place, there will be weeping, meaning great sadness and regret. There will be weeping, and there will be gnashing of teeth, meaning intense anger and rage. Still no repentance. The summary on this point, reward and praise awaits the ones who are faithful with the time bequeathed, but the ones who fail to consider God will weep and gnash their teeth. That's his summary. Now again, the church is raptured, and we're talking about at the end of the tribulation, what do we do with this information? Folks, you and I both know the rapture is meant to catch everyone by surprise. So the principles that we would find in his return are the same principles that we would want to apply for those of us who will find him taking the church up in the air before it all begins. And we want to be faithful while we wait. Be faithful. Now, because people can take end times doctrine and they can distort it, 
you can create a lot of tension in someone else's life by giving them wrong and bad information about what Jesus is doing, what his plan is in the world. And that actually happened to a group of people in the church many, many years ago. In fact, we have two books in the scripture in which the Apostle Paul is addressing this group of people regarding the bad teaching that they've got. And they're called the Thessalonians. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now while you're turning there, let me just highlight a couple of things so that you have the context on this as well. For 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonica was a place that the Apostle Paul went to in the book of Acts 17. It says that he went and he reasoned with them for three Sabbaths. He only got three Sabbaths. So somewhere between 21 and 26 days, he spent time with this group of people. And when he did, he gave them the gospel. But you know what else he taught them in that brief period? About end times. If you only had three weeks with somebody, what things would you want to cover with them? Certainly the gospel. But the Apostle Paul says, I want you to know about where things are going. Because you got to begin with the end in mind. And he directs them. And in 1 Thessalonians, one of the struggles that they were having is they were under a lot of persecution. We believe that probably some of them had even been killed in this persecution. And the Lord had not yet returned. And so they began asking themselves, what, what's going on here? Um, have they been forgotten? Is God going to receive them? Is he going to take them unto himself? And then in the book of 2 Corinthians, it's a little bit of a different matter. You had a group of people come and say, no, God already did come. Jesus has returned, and y'all have all been left behind. And it, it really made them distraught. So he made a point to come and to give them clarity on what the return is all about and what they're meant to do in the meantime. And it was, it was meant to give them hope and comfort. That's what a knowledge of what God is doing is meant to do. It's not only to equip us, but it's to give us hope and comfort so you don't live in fear, as we talked about last week. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this, As to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like, what? A thief in the night. Where did he get that teaching? This is what Jesus has said, right? So the Holy Spirit that spoke through Jesus is the same Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, and he's highlighting the same truth that's going to come like a thief in the night. But again, they've been going through difficulties, and they're stressed out about this because they're wondering, wait a minute, we don't know that we fully understand what this means. Um, earlier, Paul talks and he intimates a little bit about the rapture, and he speaks about whenever a Roman, whenever a Roman leader was coming into a town, Typically, what you would do is a delegation of your leaders and your key people would go out to meet that king. Intercept them as they're coming in. Give them the welcome. Have them prepared such that when they came into the city, they've been taken care of. And it's sort of alluding to that with the rapture and the church that is Jesus. But prior to his return, that delegation goes unto him. It's his own. It's his people. And we go as he welcomes us. But Paul says, this is part of the comfort that I'm passing on to you. And now as we look ahead, verse 3, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come on them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you're all sons of light and sons of day. We're not a night, nor of darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, they're sleeping at night. 
you know, unless it's a dry sermon, then you might do some of that sleeping here. Those who do their sleeping sleep at night. Those who get drunk, they get drunk at night. But since we're of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. He's saying, be faithful, be diligent. You know, when I was a kid, sometimes my parents would leave us. I was the oldest by about five years. I had a younger brother, younger sister. And so my parents would leave, and they would say, y'all be good. Don't break anything. Don't do anything bad. Right. And then what would happen after they left? About an hour, and I knew they were going to be gone a while. It was the Lord of the Flies. I mean, we would just, we got, we, we kind of went nuts sometimes. We had this one game in particular we called The Floor is Lava. And the idea is you had to go from one end of the house to the other without touching the floor at all. So you had to hang on doors and swing on doors, and we would climb over the fridge. You would jump off the fridge onto the dining room chairs such that you could get from one place to the other. Praise the Lord. My parents never came in when that was happening. <laughs> I was in charge. I know I would have gotten hammered. But uh, eventually we did confess. We let them know. But the whole point on this is there's an aspect of which I should have been, I should have been more ready, right? I should have been alert, taking care of my brother and sister and not forsaking that responsibility. And Jesus and Paul both are letting us know, don't live your life playing the floor is lava, right? That you're, you're frittering it away and you're doing whatever it is you want to do, but you have forsaken the very things that God has called you to do. Y'all ever had an office mate who's always playing solitaire? And you keep wondering, when is the boss going to come in and see this? You know, it's not good. It's not good that they would fritter the time away like that. And yet, we can do the same thing with our lives, can't we? We can be very much like what Jesus said. We can get so caught up in the affairs of today that we never even give a consideration of what the destination is meant to be, is going to be, and our part and our role in it. The call is to live in a way that is honoring and faithful unto God. I gave you all a memory verse last week, 2 Peter 2, 9. Let me give you another one for this week that I think helps summarize what we're talking about. And that's 1 John 3, 3. It says, everyone who has their hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he, meaning Jesus, is pure. Paul spoke in Thessalonians about the spiritual armor of God, wearing it against the notion of these... of, of of the other things that we can become embroiled in and our lives can be about. And we can lose sight of the big picture and forget history's going to a point and we've got a role in it. So the call, don't get lazy. Don't waste this life. Don't let it get frittered away on these lesser things. Take what God has given unto you, all of us as stewards. Get things ready for him. Be ready. Be ready. And that's how the last parable of the faithful landowner fits in here. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God hasn't destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we'll live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. So again, don't, don't see yourself in this God's grand plan as this individual. You're part of a team. And as part of a team, we need to see ourselves as being used in this plan and encouraging one another. Don't get just myopic on ourselves. See, how do we all fit into this? 
and to be diligent and to encourage and help one another as we move towards the ends that God has ordained. End with this, true story. January 2nd, 101 years ago, there were two football teams engaged in this hard line game, um, going at it against one another. One of the teams very much favored to win. The other one obviously not as favored to win. And the one that was unfavored was just getting plagued by injury after injury after injury. And so the bench just continues to shrink as the game goes on and on. And the coach is looking on. And he realizes we're going to be in trouble because we're going to get to the point where we're going to have to forfeit. We're not going to have enough people to play if we get one more injury. But the coach also knew something. Up in the press box was a young man who had been part of the squad, the practice squad. And so he looks over at him, points at him, motions, get on down here, son. So the guy comes down, comes up to the coach, and the coach says, boy, it didn't look like we're going to have enough players to finish out this game. You may have to suit up and go in there as a player. And stand, or at a minimum, you're going to have to stand around for a while on the bench just to be our backup. The guy said, aye, aye, sir. Goes out, and he finds a running back who's all beat up. He says, give me your outfit. So he takes all his pads, takes his clothes, whatever. He gets all dressed, suited up, goes out, stands on the line. Now, as fate would have it, he didn't actually have to play. But he was out there on the bench, ready to go at a moment's notice. He was ready. And so um, as the game unfolded, turns out it was one of these real big upsets. The unfavored team wound up coming from behind and winning the game. So the, it was the losing team then was called the Center College Praying Colonels. How's that for a name? Guess they didn't pray enough that day. And they lost, well, scored 22 to 14. Anybody here know the name of the team that won that game? They're called the Texas A&M Aggies. And the result is a tradition came out of this. And the tradition was that in every single football game and basketball game, the entire student body stands. You don't sit for the game at all. And they're symbolic in that they're saying, we will also be the 12th man if necessary. We are always on the ready, and you can put us right into the game. And the name of that player was Earl King Gill. How's that? <laughs> and Jesus is letting all his followers know there's going to be a series of events before Jesus returns. And he gives the reminder, I want you to know about them. And I want you to be ready. And when Jesus calls, I think you're like me. I don't want to be at the concession stand getting nachos when he says, it's time and I need you here in the game. So instead, I want to be Jack serving the King Gill. And I want to be found faithful, and I want to be found ready. And you do 